according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest of you who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, you call out to us tonight to hear these words. These words are not, were not just for this historical church in Thyatira, they're also for our church tonight. And Lord, this is a, a hard-hitting letter, but I pray as we go through this that we would hear these words as words from a loving husband, if you will, uh, this, this is, we remind us that this is Christ's, Christ's um, heart for his beloved bride. We are his beloved bride even when we mess up and even when we cheat on him, even when we sin and commit spiritual adultery and have an affair with the world, Christ still loves us and longs for us to repent and be restored to him. And so, Lord, we've all come at different places in our lives tonight, and I just ask that your word would accomplish its work in all of our lives. If there's anyone here that needs to be saved, uh, needs to repent and believe like Jeremy just testified about, uh, or perhaps there's a believer here who has been living in some sort of sin that uh, tonight you would help them to realize that what they think is the secret is really not because you see it and you know it and that they would give it up tonight and that they would, uh, your, your patience with them would lead them to repentance. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, if there was one word that epitomize, excuse me, epitomizes the mindset of America today, I think it would be the word tolerance. Tolerance has become the supreme virtue of our increasingly sinful culture. Virtually every aberrant belief and abhorrent behavior that was once considered unthinkable is now embraced in the name of tolerance. And ironically, the only thing people refuse to tolerate is intolerance. No one is allowed to question or confront everyone else's opinions um, or lifestyles. Um, we're all expected to accept these things as equally valid, regardless of the morals, the values, the practices, right? We can't question them. We can't confront them. And it's really a result of having abandoned the Word of God, which is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And so without the Word of God, people are left without any absolutes, and they feel free to determine right and wrong for themselves. And so consequently, there is no right or wrong. There's what's right and wrong for you, and there's what's right and wrong for me. And who am I to tell you that what you think is right is wrong, and who are you 
to tell me what I think is wrong is right. Sound familiar? That's the world in which we live. But God says this in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and what? Good evil. Who call right wrong and wrong right. Well, we know from the very beginning that God made it very clear that there is one thing that he does not tolerate, and that's what? Sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they were banished. Mankind sinned. They were drowned. Uh, Those who were building the Tower of Babel were seeking their own glory, and so God scrambled their speech and scattered them across the, the nations. Israel sinned, and they were consigned to wander in the wilderness, and later uh, in their history, they were exiled uh, in Babylon for 70 years. You remember when the church first started in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied about some offering that they had given, and what did God do? He killed them on the spot. And so all over the New Testament, there are commands, there are exhortations, there's examples uh, of how we're supposed to deal with sin within the church in order to maintain the purity of the bride of Christ. It is Christ's desire that his church be holy and blameless. And yet churches throughout history have tolerated sin, not only among their members, but also among their leaders. You may remember back in 2003... The Episcopal Church was the first mainstream denomination in the United States to consecrate an openly gay bishop who was not celibate. So this was groundbreaking. And uh, it happened to be in New Hampshire. I guess I knew about that because I'm from New England and I kind of watch what what goes on over there in in, in what is becoming a very post-Christian culture, just like England itself. Um, but this is, th- these are the words of the Reverend Gene Robinson, who was consecrated the bishop of the Diocese of New Hampshire, and uh, an openly gay bishop. And this is what he said, and I'm quoting here. He says, what I can tell you is that in my relationship with my partner, I am able to express the deep love that's in my heart. And in his unfailing and unquestioning love of me, I experienced just a little bit of the kind of never-ending, never-failing love that God has for me. So, this is what he described his gay marriage, it's sacramental. And I would say, no, it's sacrilegious. (laughs) It's sinful. It's satanic. It's not what God designed for a marriage. And as shocking as that may sound, it should really come as no shock that the church in our day tolerates sexual deviance like that since the church in the first century tolerated it as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5 for a second. 1 Corinthians 5, and I thought this was a good illustration to begin with tonight. Again, you're familiar, I think, with this Uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul rebuked the immorality that was going on unchecked in the church in Corinth. But let's just read this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. 
In other words, what's going on in your church, I heard there was some immorality, sexual immorality going on in your church that even the pagans look down upon. That's even scandalous for unbelievers. Well, what do you say? Well, what is that? That someone has his father's wife. In other words, that this man was somehow sexually involved with his stepmother. So this was, you could liken this to an incestuous type relationship. Notice verse 2, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, you haven't done anything about this. You've let this guy like continue to come to church and not even address it. And everybody kind of knows it. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, when I get there, if you don't do something about it, I will. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do, not know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, notice verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he's back to this guy who's in the church, and they're all associating with him. He's sitting here at the fellowship supper on Wednesday night, uh, and, and he's just right here, and everybody's just hanging out with him, and nobody's saying anything about his sin. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. That's what, I wasn't talking about like unsaved people. We know they're immoral, but you got to hang around with them so you can share the gospel with them. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. In other words, somebody who professes to be a Christian, but who's living in immorality, or is covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In other words, that guy shouldn't be allowed to come to the fellowship supper on Wednesday night until he repents. But, but somebody needs to tell him that. Right? Somebody needs to love him enough to go to him and show him his sin, like it says in Galatians chapter 6, to restore someone who's overtaken in a fault. Uh, Matthew 18 gives us the steps. We talked about that last time, uh, to confront someone in sin, to, to, for the goal, ultimate goal of restoring them. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then here's the point. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. At some point, if he doesn't repent, you've got to kick the guy out of the church. It's what's called excommunication. And a similar situation existed in the church in Thyatira. There was an immoral false teacher who was leading many of the members astray from the truth by suggesting that they could participate in the sinful practices of the pagan culture out of which they were saved. And shockingly, the, the pastors and the elders and the shepherds of the church didn't do anything about it. They should have excommunicated this gal. 
And so the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, wrote a letter to the church letting them know that he was intolerant of what they had tolerated and he would judge all of them if they didn't repent and do the right thing. And so as I mentioned, this is the, the longest of the seven letters. Even though it was the smallest and least significant of the cities addressed by Christ in these first three chapters of Revelation. But again, we're going to follow the same pattern uh, as the other six letters. The co- we're going to look at the correspondent, the city, the church, the commendation, the condemnation, the correction, um, or command, and then the consolation. Okay, so let's look first of all at the correspondent. Look at verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So Jesus opened this letter with a sobering description of himself that was intended, I think, to grab their attention. And he asserted his authority right off the bat here in a much stronger way than in the first three letters by introducing himself as the Son of God which, by the way, is the only place in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. But this title emphasizes the deity of Christ, that he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and therefore shares divine authority to judge sin. And so, as I already mentioned in our, our opening prayer, that, that, that this letter reveals the more severe side of Christ. And again, notice how Jesus identified himself um, as the author of this letter by borrowing terminology from the vision of Christ uh, that John um, described in chapter 1 that best fit the particular situation in Thyatira. He's quoting here from chapter 1, verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it, was, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. So he says, who has eyes like a flame of fire. This is, this is I think, a description of the, the piercing omniscience of Christ. In other words, he has, has, has supernatural ability to penetrate the deepest corners of our hearts. His all-knowing gaze looks past the facades and sees behind our masks that we wear to church. And he sees what no one else can see. He, he, he sees our thoughts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. Nothing can be hid from the eyes of Christ. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So everything in our church and everything in our lives is laid bare before him. He knows everything about us. Nothing escapes his attention. This is why... One of the prayers that we often prayed for our kids as they were growing up, and particularly when they were, we, they were getting more freedom to go out and do whatever they wanted to do and make some of their own choices, and, and we had less and less control over where they were or what they were doing or who they were with, and we would pray, Lord, give them a sense of your omnipresence and your omniscience, that it doesn't matter if mom and dad are there. 
that really never should have mattered to begin with. It, all, it always, always only mattered that God was there. And God saw, and God knows, and he sees, right, and he hears. He's the silent witness to every act, to every conversation, right, and even to every thought and motive. So he has eyes like fire, but he also has feet like burnished bronze. Again, this is uh, the burning hot feet uh, of of, of Christ represent divine judgment, that Christ uh, was standing here Uh, at the entrance to this church, as it were, uh, ready to trample down and punish all the evil, all the impurity that his blazing eyes saw in this church and in these people's lives. And so I think this terrifying description of Christ must have struck fear into the hearts of the members of the church of Thyatira when this letter was read to them, when the pastor got up and and they were sitting on their edge of the seat waiting to hear what Jesus had to say to them. And he didn't say, hi, everyone, it's nice to see you, and uh, this is Jesus talking, and it's all warm and fuzzy and cuddly, and right, we, some of us like to just stick with that part of Jesus, right? All the lovey-dovey stuff about Jesus, which is true. There is a lot of great love passages about Christ, but there's also these judgment passages, the severer side of Christ. And so that's the the correspondent. Now let's look at the city. Again, to the city, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. So again, if you think about the map, and we had the map up here a few weeks ago, uh, but Thyatira is um, southeast of Pergamum. So Pergamum was the northernmost of the seven uh, cities, and the Roman road would curve down now. We're starting to go downhill um, southeast to Thyatira, which was approximately 40 miles away. Again, this was the fourth major city. The postman would visit uh, in his clockwise journey through the cities of Asia Minor. Uh, Thyatira was a much smaller city than all the other cities. It didn't compare uh, with the size or the beauty or the importance of the, of the rest of these cities. Militarily, it was expendable. It was originally founded as a buffer zone designed to to slow down advancing armies to kind of protect Pergamum. Um, But what set this blue-collar town apart were its trade guilds. Um, Similar to our trade unions, uh, this city was, while it wasn't really anything special politically or or culturally, um, it was a very prosperous manufacturing and marketing center. And so each trade has, had its own association, whether you were a wool worker or, or a, a linen worker or a dyer of, 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 of uh, materials or a tanner, a potter, a bronzesmith, you name it, kind of like if you work in the steel industry, the car industry, right, the coal industry here in America, the blue-collar workers, you have your trade union. Well, they had these trade guilds, but they were linked to false religions, and each guild had their their own patron deity to whom they paid homage to uh, in feasts and other seasonal festivities in exchange for economic blessing. Or at least that's what they were said they were told to believe. So membership in these trade guilds required that you worship the guardian god, whatever that god was, the god of the trade guild, you would have to attend its banquets, you had to eat food offered to that god. And you also had to stay after for the party that invariably degenerated into a sexual orgy. 
Well, obviously, this created a dilemma for those who had committed their lives to follow Christ. If they left the union or refused to participate, they could lose their job. They would potentially jeopardize the livelihood of their family. And so it was virtually impossible to make a living without being a a, a card-carrying member of, of a trade guild. And yet we know it was improper for a Christian to be involved in idolatry and immorality. So this was the difficult situation facing the believers in the church in Thyatira. Well, let's talk about the church for a second. It says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, we don't know anything really about this church other than what we find in this letter. Uh, The history of this church is not recorded anywhere else in the scriptures. Um, Just like it is with uh, Smyrna and Pergamum, really, the Bible doesn't mention the founding of this church. Um, But we do know that the city of Thyatira is mentioned in the book of Acts. You remember in Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was converted under Paul's ministry in Philippi. So she may have either moved there and was living in Philippi, or maybe she had traveled there to do business and sell her goods, but she was actually from Thyatira. So um, if you remember, she uh, got saved along with the members of her household, and they were baptized. So perhaps uh, if that wasn't their permanent home, she and her family could have gone back to Thyatira and started this church. Uh, It's more likely, however, that that the church was founded as an outreach of Paul's ministry when he was in Ephesus, and he spent spent two years there uh, in Ephesus. Acts 19.10 talks about that. Well, let's look at the commendation here, a commendation. Verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So this was a commendable church. They were outstanding in several ways. And, and, and Christ gave this impressive list of, of her praiseworthy qualities or strengths, love, faith, service, patient endurance. And so they faithfully and, and sacrificially served the Lord, just like the church in Ephesus, but they hadn't lost their first love. They still had their first love. They exercised the perseverance of Smyrna and the faith of Pergamum. And on top of that, they were growing in all these areas. That's what he means when he says, and your deeds of late are greater than at first. You're just getting better and better at these things. But despite the fact that they were growing and maturing, that didn't minimize Christ's displeasure with them. And I think this is a great reminder that no amount of love and sacrificial service and endurance can compensate for tolerating sin, whether in our church or in our own personal lives. Ephesus was zealous for sound doctrine but had no love. Thyatira, on the other hand, had love but lacked the discernment necessary to keep the church pure. And I think churches usually lean towards one of these two extremes. Either a church will be really loving but very undiscerning, or they will be very sound in their doctrine but be really unloving. And, and both of these extremes are deadly. Ba- balance, right, is always 
the key. God desires and demands both love and sound doctrine. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. There's the balance. There's the blend. 1 Timothy 1, 5, the goal of our instruction is what? Love. I didn't know this, but salt is composed of two poisons, sodium and chloride. If you eat one without the other, guess what's going to happen? You're going to die. But if you mix them together properly, you get sodium chloride, which is table salt. And I think doctrine or love are like the two ingredients of, of salt, it, it, right? Salt gives flavor to food and life and health to our bodies. And so love and doctrine always must be bound together. And separately, they can be extremely deadly, right? That's where you get the fighting fundamentalists over here who are all about sound doctrine and they're very unloving. And then you've got the raving charismatics over here. They're all about love, but they're very undiscerning and have no sound doctrine. You want to avoid both of those extremes. And together, love and sound doctrine make for a healthy body of Christ. And so I think the church in Thyatira had gotten out of balance, and the result was deadly. So let's look at the condemnation. This is what you came for, right? This is always the challenging part. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. She sound familiar? If you were on Sunday, we just talked about her, right? Who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So Christ was, was angry that they had allowed a, a promiscuous prophetess to spread her poisonous teaching throughout the church, which resulted in many eating food or meat offered to idols and also committing immorality, sexual immorality. Which, by the way, were the two things that were specifically forbidden for Christians by the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. If you remember uh, when the, the Jews were trying to figure out what to do with all these Gentiles who were getting saved, they didn't expect this to happen. They thought Jesus had come for them, and now the Gentiles are getting in on the action. They're repenting. And, well, what are we going to tell them? Are they supposed to keep all the Jewish laws and, 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 and eat the certain kinds of foods and, 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 and basically become Jews? They didn't have to just become Christians. They also have to become Jews. That's what the Jews were originally thinking. And so they met together for this, the, the original church council in Acts chapter 15, and this was the conclusion, Acts 15, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. In other words, we're not going to put on, oh, we're not going to make you Jews, okay? But this is what we require, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from the blood and from things strangled. So that, that, that would just kind of cause conflict. If you're sitting in church, a Jew and Gentile sit, sharing the same pew together, and uh, you're eating meat offered to idols, that's probably going to offend your brother. So you probably don't want to do that. And definitely don't be eating blood, okay, because the Jews are, don't like that. And uh, so stay away from those things and from fornication. So all that to say, the leaders of this church in Thyatira should have known better that there shouldn't be any eating meat offered to idols and there should be no, obviously no sexual immorality, no fornication, 
but they put up with this. And, and by their silence and lack of rebuke, by implication, they were agreeing with her. They were affirming her. And so no wonder the Lord was angry. Not only were they violating God's word by allowing a woman to be a preacher and teacher and exercise authority in their church, but their sinful negligence was also compounded by the fact that she was teaching heresy. I mean, it's one thing if you've got a lady teaching and she's at least teaching the Bible, right? But this lady was teaching heresy. And Jesus called this woman who? Jezebel. By the way, after if you were here on Sunday, you know we preach, I preached a message about Jezebel, and so I was out in the foyer and uh, meeting the new folks, and this lady came out and handed me her visitor card, and I noticed her name was Amy, and I said, oh, hey, Amy, how you doing? She goes, no, my name's Jezebel. I was like, well, at least she had a good sense of humor, right? And I knew she had been listening to the message, and so we got a laugh out of that, um, but um, it's, it's doubtful that this chick's name really was Jezebel, okay? Um, again, I said this on Sunday, it's unthinkable that anybody would actually call their daughter Jezebel. It'd be like naming your son Judas. I mean, who does that, right? But we know Jezebel was, was the most infamous woman in the Old Testament, and by nicknaming this gal Jezebel, Jesus was implying that she was just like Jezebel of the Old Testament. And again, if you weren't here on Sunday, let me give you a quick background uh, of a quick history lesson, I guess, on Jezebel, um, because we need to understand who Jezebel was to understand what, what in the world this woman was doing in the church in Thyatira. So you got to go back to the original Jezebel. We find her in 1 Kings 16 through 21. You don't have to turn there, but you can maybe just write that down, 1 Kings 16 to 21. She was a Canaanite woman. Okay, so a, not an Israelite. She was a Canaanite who married King Ahab, who was the king of the, of, the, of the northern tribe of Israel, the ten northern tribes, northern kingdom. And uh, this, this marriage between King Ahab and Jezebel was a match made in hell. Seriously. She was the most wicked woman in the Bible, and he was the most wicked king in the history of Israel. And so together they wreaked havoc on God's chosen people. And Jezebel was a deceptive, manipulative, domineering wife. She was Israel's first lady, if you will. She wore the pants. She ran the nation through her husband. She introduced Baal worship to Israel, which involved the grossest sexual practices imaginable. And as we mentioned on Sunday, in an effort to promote her idolatry and her immorality uh, throughout the land of Israel, she personally financed 850 false prophets of Baal, had them eaten at her table. She would feed them breakfast, lunch, and dinner to do her bidding. And then at the same time, she sought to exterminate all of God's prophets, including Elijah, after he defeated the 450 prophets of Baal, killed them on Mount Carmel, right? Blood was running in the river, Kishon there. And so she said, before the days, before the sun sets, you're a dead man. And Elijah took off running, scared uh, of this woman, and, uh, and, and, and he, he, got, he got so bad, he thought he was the last prophet alive. And remember what God said? Hey, bud, chin up. There's 7,000 
other prophets that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So you're not all alone. She was a ruthless liar, a cold-blooded murderer. You can read the story of Naboth's vineyard. Her husband was whining about the fact that he wanted the guy's property next to him and he wouldn't give it to him, wouldn't sell it to him. So she wrote letters in his name and got the guy convicted of blaspheming uh, the king, had these two guys come in and stone him to death. And, And she goes to her husband, there you go. You can have it now. I just took care of the guy. I mean, this is just the way, this is the kind of woman she was. So we could call her a worldly witch. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so she was eventually, this is how she died. She was thrown out of a window and trampled by horses and eaten by dogs. That's what God thinks about the Jezebels of the world, right? So with that brief background of, of Jezebel's life and, and, and wicked rampage, Let's go back to Thyatira here. And so this prominent woman in the church was just like Jezebel. And so through her evil influence, she was leading many of the members astray into idolatry and immorality. Those were the two no-nos, right? And the nation of Israel was always, it was like, hey, don't, don't intermarry with the, with the women. Don't commit immorality with the women because then you're going to end up worshiping their gods, right? And one would lead to the other and the other would lead to the other. And so she was doing the same exact thing. And apparently she was encouraging them to participate in these pagan practices of the trade guilds. And perhaps her reasoning was something like this. Listen, an idol is nothing at all. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Get involved. It won't hurt you. Besides, how are you going to provide for your family if you don't do all this stuff? If you don't go along with the boys, right? Where the boys want you to go after. This would be like for some of you guys. I know you, some of you guys. I've talked to some of you guys. Uh, that, that work out in the world, and, and, and you get invited to go to places uh, after work with the buddies, and you got to make a decision. Now, can you imagine if I or one of our elders came along and said, oh, dude, it's all right. Just go along with them. It's good for business. It's good for you b- building relationships with those guys. Can you imagine that? It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? You know you shouldn't go along with those guys, but if we were encouraging you to do the same thing, that's essentially what I think what was happening here. She may have been teaching the age-old error that the more you descend into the depths of sin, the more you can appreciate the grace of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where uh, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And what did Paul say? "Uh Uh-uh. Shall you go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be, right? He knew that some people thought that way. And so tragically, many in the church were buying into her false teaching, which she claimed to have received from God. She was a prophetess. And that's what prophets did. They're like, hey, I'm I'm the voice of God here. I'm speaking on behalf of God. So she claimed to be a prophetess. And I think this is a great reminder that not everyone who says they speak for God speaks for God. There's a lot of people out there claiming that they're... God's mouthpiece, and they're not. And the authenticating mark of a true prophet is that their, their, their words agree with God's words. Deuteronomy 18, uh, the Old Testament principle here I mentioned, I think, uh, either last week or Sunday. I'm, they're all kind of running together now. Um, Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 20 but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. 
you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How are we supposed to tell when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? If the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. In other words, if hey, this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, guess what? He's lying. The prophet has spoken presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. In fact, kill him. That's what God thinks of false prophets. So the word of God really is the only sure standard by which we can test supposed words from the Lord. And again, we need to be good Bereans, right? Acts 17 talks about the Bereans who evaluated everything that Paul was saying and compared it to make sure that's what the Bible said. And I think the simple rule is this, if what is being taught or claimed as being from God is in any way contrary to Scripture, then it must be rejected. It's not true. It's not from God. And so this woman's teaching should have been rejected, but it wasn't. Notice verse 21. I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. So this woman, God had, Christ had been gracious to her, given her plenty of time to repent, but she refused. She, she, she loved her sin. She loved what she was doing. She didn't want to give it up. And so Christ promised to bring sudden and immediate judgment on her and her followers. Notice what he says here, interesting. He says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. So I think the point here is that she sinned on a bed. She was an adulteress. She was an immoral person. And so she would suffer on a bed of sickness and pain. So in other words, the punishment fit the crime. Someone, I read this and I, I wasn't sure what I thought about it, but I thought it was an interesting thought. Um, that is as if Christ said, you're going to spend the rest of eternity in hell on a bed. That's punishment. <laughs> for your immorality here on this earth during your lifetime. Don't quote me on that because I didn't say I agreed with it. I just thought it was an interesting thought. The point being, sometimes God punishes us, disciplines us in a fitting way. And notice he says that um, it was a bed of sickness. So sometimes God uses physical illness Disease as a discipline for our sin. Got to be careful here. We don't misunderstand or misapply James 5, 14. It says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for, for, pray for one another so that you may be healed. Interesting, there seems to be a convergence there of, of, of physical sickness 
and spiritual sickness and physical healing and spiritual healing. Now, again, if I come to see you in the hospital someday because you got sick or you got diagnosed with some disease, just so you know, I'm not walking into the hospital and the first thing I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say this, I'm not going to look down and say, okay, what'd you do? What sin are you living in? I'm not even thinking that, just so you know. I'm thinking, you know, we live in a fallen, broken world, and this is just part of living in a sin-cursed body, and we get cancer, and right, we get sick, and whatever. But there may be times when somebody who is physically sick, the Lord will use that sickness, right, to convict them of sin in their life. And so the elders, the pastors will come and visit them and, and just want to pray with them, pray for them, and it may be that they... You know, they want to, um, you know, say, hey, I, I just feel like I need to confess some sin. And they're like, okay, let me pray for you. Um, again, let's not assume that anybody gets a cold, they must have sinned. You know, anybody breaks their leg, they must have sinned. I'll never forget when I was a student at the Masters College, we were playing intramural uh, football, and I was playing uh, safety, and I, and I went, went, I jumped up to try to intercept the pass, and I came down, and I just heard, I came down on one leg, and I just heard, my knee just, just cracked and crinkled, and I, was, and I just immediately hit the ground. I was like, out. I'm laying there just, ah! And I remember the, the, the dean of the, the students ran over to me and was looking over, and he goes, okay, what did you do? <laughs> like, in other words, God's judging you right now. And I'm like, well, honestly, I said I was supposed to be in class. <laughs> I'm skipping class to play this game. <laughs> so I did. I started confessing my sin uh, to the dean. So everybody laughed around me, and they just dragged me off the field and went back to playing. But, um, yeah, let's make sure we understand this. But the, the point is that sometimes God may use physical illness, right, to get our attention. Ex in extreme cases, he may even kill us. And take us home to be with him in heaven. 1 John 5, 16, interesting verse here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin, he said there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. So what is this sin leading to death concept? It's like, okay, we just... That's a rabbit hole right there. We could go down for the rest of our time tonight. But I think there are a lot of Bible teachers have interpreted that to mean that there, in certain, certain situations, if there is a, a believer who continually gives in to particular sin and continually brings dishonor and shame upon the name of Christ, that out of um, desire to, to maintain his reputation, the reputation of Christ, Christ will just take him home. So he doesn't make him look bad anymore. Um, and you say, well, is there any example in the Bible of that? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about these people that were taking communion in a way that was dishonoring to Christ. And he said, and that's why some of you sleep. And he didn't mean they were falling asleep during communion service. He means they were dying. And so God takes communion very seriously. And so the point is this, though. Sin that is unconfessed, unrepented of, will always result in suffering and punishment of some kind. That, that's the unbreakable law of the harvest. We always reap what we 
What? So, you've heard me say this before. We, when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. That's just, that's just the way it is. You just got to understand that. And so the reason why Christ threatened such severe judgment on the church in Thyatira is he knew that, that all the other churches in Asia were aware of what was going on in Thyatira. And he wanted to forever burn in their minds how serious he is about the holiness of his church and what happens to a church or an individual that tolerates sin. Notice what he says here in verse 24. Well, note verse 23. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So he wanted, Jesus was using them as an example. It's interesting that they're the the centerpiece of the seven churches, right? So it's every church that came before them, every church that came after them, right, were, were to look at the church in, in, in Thyatira and go, wow, we don't want to be that church. And so Christ wanted them to never forget that he's always watching. He's searching everyone's heart, everyone's mind, and he will reward each of us according to our deeds. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to his, what his deeds deserve. Matthew 16.27, the Son of Man will reward each person according to what he has done. And so in the same vein of that communion passage, 1 Corinthians 11, what Paul said was the solution to not die in communion, <laughs> to not have judged, God judge you, is judge yourself. Judge yourself. Examine your life. And make sure you're being open and honest with the Lord about any sin in your life and, and, and deal with it so that God doesn't have to. God's eyes, right, is searching. He's always searching. He sees. Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. In other words, instead of trying to, running, trying to hide from God, invite God into your life and say, God, would you, I, I get it, you're doing that, so I'm inviting you into my life. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way. Show me my sin so I can deal with it rather than trying to hide it from him, as if we could actually do that, right? So let's look at the correction here, or the command, verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. So apparently there was a faithful remnant that had not gone along with Jezebel's teaching, which he refers to as the deep things of Satan, which perhaps is what they referred to him as, or, you know, it may have been considered, um, this, this may have been a, a play on words. It could have been that they, they, they were saying, these are the deep things of God. Jezebel's up there saying, hey, these are the really deep things of God. And he's like, no, actually, they're the deep things of Satan. <laughs> so that was kind of the early heretical Gnosticism Right, where, hey, this is a higher, higher knowledge. You, you got to come up to our level, you know. And so, no, that, that's not deep. 
No, those, those are Satan's things, not, not God's things. But notice, the only thing that Christ required of this faithful remnant was just to continue living in obedience to God's word. Hey, just stay faithful. He understood how, how difficult it was to, to remain faithful in this culture of doctrinal and moral compromise. So he encouraged them just to hang in there until he came back to rapture them. Verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Hold fast. I'm coming. Hang on. Hang in there. I'm coming. I'll never forget riding in, in, in my car with a guy, a guy I really love and respect. He's an older saint and a, a ministry leader for many, many years ran a huge missions organization, worldwide missions organization, and he was here in the early years of our church just uh, teaching at a, at a missions conference we did, and we're, we're talking about a, a, a well-known Bible teacher who had just taught something that was a little bit off. It was just, and he was explaining it to me, what, what this guy had, had taught, that, that, that didn't really line up with scripture. He kind of just kind of went off the rails a little bit and, and, and kind of took some... Uh, I guess some liberties and 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 uh, you know suggested some things, but it confused some people. <clears throat> and this guy said to me, "Yeah, he bumped his head." I'm like, "He what?" He goes, "Yeah, that's what I call it when somebody like teaches heresy. They 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 bump their head." He's a good guy, you know. Ninety five percent of what the guy teaches is right on, but he bumped his head in this area. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He says, "That's why I always pray, Ken. Lord, help me make it home before dark. Help me make it home before dark." I thought, what a, what a cool statement. What a cool prayer, right? Lord, just help me. I know uh, it's only by your grace that I'm going to make it home before I bump in my head, right? <laughs> and saying something stupid or doing something stupid. So, Lord, just help me make it home before dark. And then listen to the sweet consolation, verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end... To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and his vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So after such a solemn warning, I think these people were ready for some comforting words of hope, and so Christ, I think his pattern, we, we see this in this letter and, and in other letters, that he, he would give some positive affirmation. And then he would confront and correct, but then he would provide some hope, right? Some, some motivating promise. And I think we can learn from this example, the example of Christ, uh, as we're striving to be more Christ-like, right? When uh, and if we ever need to confront somebody about some sin in their life, we should follow Christ's example here, and we should preface our rebuke with some encouraging words, like, Hey, let me, let me share some evidences of grace that I see in your life and I'm so encouraged by. And then after that, those words of encouragement then, then transition to, to the but, right? <laughs> We're seeing this in, in these letters, but. But then after confronting them, you need to go back to giving them hope that will motivate them, right, to, to, to repent and to, to follow Christ. I had a friend years ago, he would liken this to an Oreo. Just whenever you have to confront somebody, just think about an Oreo. 
And he was a junior high pastor. That's why he said this. He had to make things really simple, right? Um, so Oreo. He said, so you got the two, right, the two uh, chocolate cookies, and you got the thing in the middle. So you start with encouragement, you deal with the sin issue, and then you end with another word of encouragement. And that's just the way we should always be addressing one another. And so Christ concluded this letter here by making a promise to those who overcome the seductive influence of this Jezebel woman in their church. And he uses that word overcomer, which we know uh, is a a word that's synonymous with a believer, a Christian, a true believer, those who who prove by their perseverance in doing God's will um, that that they indeed are genuine Christians, right? A, A person who's truly saved will remain faithful to the Lord as long as they live. And even if they fall away, right, the Lord will grant them repentance. He'll, he'll bring them back around. And so sometimes you wonder, somebody that like walked with the Lord for many years and then they just kind of veer off and walk away from the Lord and like, well, they, they probably weren't saved. Well, the jury's still out. There's still time. As long as they're still alive, maybe the Lord will bring them back home, right? Bring them back around. But this is, the, again, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But notice that Jesus promised all true believers, two things. Number one, he promised that we will reign with him. And that's what these quotes, the kind of the big capitalized letters here in italics, uh, tipping us off that he's quoting from the Old Testament. This is Psalm 2, by the way, which is a messianic psalm looking ahead to the second coming of Christ when he'll destroy all those who, who proudly oppose him and refuse to bow the knee to him. And so when Christ returns, he's going to set up an earthly kingdom and reign for a thousand years. And Christ's reward for those of us who are faithfully following him will be to reign and rule with him during the millennium. And we see that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over those over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So Jesus was simply saying here to these people in Thyatira, listen, God the Father has given me all rule and authority. I'm going to share that rule and authority with you. And we're going to sit alongside one another and, 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 and we're going to administer justice and we're going to punish those who refuse to repent and, and place their faith in, in me and, and, uh, and, and we're going to reign together. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So this is the point. If you want to rule with Jesus in the future, you need to be faithful to him in the present. So he promised that we'll reign with him. That's number one. But number two is even, it's, it's way better. It's not just the greatest, it's not just a greater promise. It's the greatest promise. And that is he promises himself and I will give him the morning star. There's only one other time in all of Scripture that this phrase morning star is used, and it's in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
So Jesus promised to give believers himself, and we will ultimately reflect his glory throughout eternity. Someone said it this way, the one we love, for whom we suffer, to whom we profess our love and loyalty will finally be ours in open, face-to-face fellowship and joy. Seeing Jesus face-to-face. That's the promise. And then we have that familiar line as we close, verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, This is the first time he used that as an ending line. He's going to use that for the remaining three letters. He's going to end with that. And again, the statement is, is there to ensure that no one lets what Jesus just said go in one ear and out the other. In other words, this is Jesus' way of saying, okay, so what are you going to do about it now? And so we need to apply this to our lives. So the first question is, what is the Spirit saying that we need to do as a church? I think it's very simple. If God doesn't tolerate sin in the church, then neither should we. We must never tolerate sinful teaching or living of any kind in this church. And the day we do, we open up ourselves to the judgment of God. Someone said this, that that practicing church discipline is preparing us for ruling with Christ in the age to come. We're just practicing. What does it look like to judge sin? So, what is the Spirit saying that we need to do as a church? How about this? More personally, what is the Spirit saying that you need to do tonight? What is the Spirit saying to you tonight? Is there any sin that you're tolerating in your life? Are you pampering some, some pet sin? Are you fudging on your finances? Are you flirting with a coworker? Are you looking at pornography? Is there anything you're refusing to repent of? God will judge eventually ongoing unrepentant sin. And that's why we must deal severely with sin or God will deal severely with us. Let me remind you of some encouraging words from Paul, Romans chapter 2, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, it's easy to point the finger at everybody else. Oh, I can't believe they did that. How, would, how could they, right? When you're guilty of, of the same, if not worse. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance? Interesting. We're talking about tolerance. And guess what? God is tolerant and patient. Are you, don't you know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Sound familiar, doesn't it? To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. The point is this. Up until tonight, 
If you are harboring some sin, you're tolerating some sin in your life, up until this moment, God has been giving you time to repent. How gracious, how kind, how tolerant of our God. For those of you that are studying the book of Revelation in the Brinkman Grow Group, you know this name, Amir Sarfati, right? He's wrote, written a really good book on Revelation. I've been using it kind of as a, as a resource. But I just want to end with what his words I think are so precious and important. He said this, Our God is long-suffering and takes no joy in discipline. He would much rather we turn to him on our own accord after recognizing our sin and repenting. However, there is a point when God will eventually say, that's enough. You've had time. I've given you many opportunities to change your attitudes and your actions, but you've refused. Therefore, this is what I'm about to do. He says, you don't want to get to that place in your church, and you don't want to get to that place in your life. God is holding out forgiveness to you no matter who, no matter uh, what you have done or are currently doing. Make the change now. Let him cleanse you of your sin. Put yourself on the path of righteousness, hope, and joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of hope that there is a path of righteousness. There is a path of of peace and, and joy. We know that the, your word says the way of the transgressor is hard and adversity pursues the sinner. It seems insane that we would choose the harder road, but that's what we do whenever we choose to sin. And so, Lord, thank you for uh, being gracious to us and, and giving us time to repent, helping us come to our, own, our senses, if you will, on our own before you have to punish us or discipline us. Lord, thank you that Ultimately, we know that our sin, while it angers you, um, it really is, it causes you to pity us as a child with a, with a, a, a disease, an ailment. And um, so, Lord, there is a, a beautiful blend of the way we should view um, how you view us when we sin. And so, help us to get it right. Help us to have that biblical balance um, of, of, of that you are... Uh, this, this combination of, 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 of kindness and severity all rolled into one. And so, Lord, we don't want to test your patience. Uh, we want to just be humble and repent. And so just make us sensitive to our sin. Search our hearts. Show us if there's any evil way, any wicked way in us. And uh, grant us repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.